KBCS is powered by listeners just like you. Support this and other KBCS stories, interviews, and highlights by donating at our website, kbcs.fm. Welcome to The Grit, your morning resource to go deeper into local and global current issues. I'm your host, Yuko Kadama. Today on The Grit, a highlight of a week-long series of actions by Tsuru for Solidarity and La Resistencia. An action tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. at the Federal Building, a couple of events at a former incarceration site, Northwest Detention Center, and then an action next Tuesday. Each February... Japanese-American communities nationwide observe the Day of Remembrance, the anniversary of the signing of Executive Order 9066, which led to the mass incarceration of over 120,000 Japanese-Americans across the West Coast during World War II. The survivors of this incarceration and their descendants fight mass incarceration today due to their community's experiences during that time. Today, we'll hear from Tsuru for Solidarity, an organization of Japanese-American activists, and La Resistencia, a group advocating for immigrants detained today. Next, Stan Shikuma, the co-chair of Tsuru for Solidarity's Children and Family Detention Campaign, starts by describing the beginnings of Tsuru for Solidarity locally. Well, the beginnings really come out of the Thule Lake pilgrimage and the events of 2018, where the Trump administration initiated their zero tolerance policy, where they were intentionally separating children from their families at the border. Uh, Happened in April of that year. And then the Supreme Court allowed the third iteration of Trump's Muslim ban banning all immigrants from seven uh, nations, almost all of them primarily Muslim countries. That whole process of vilifying an entire people, in this case based on religion, just resonated with what was happening with Japanese during and before World War II. You know, this vilification where we're not considered human, we're considered the enemy automatically, um, no matter how long we've been here, no matter what our citizenship is. Uh, And the separation of families really cut deep because so many Japanese families lost their, usually the father was taken away right after Pearl Harbor and sometimes not seen for months or years. I know some people who never saw their fathers again uh, after that separation. So those types of things really struck a chord. So when we went on the Thule Lake pilgrimage that summer, there was this real sentiment that, you know, we're sitting in this concentration camp, visiting it, standing outside the jail where, you know, uh, a further separation because the families were in camp and then they separated people again by putting them in jail and sending them off to other camps. So we felt like we needed to to say something. So we held this kind of a spontaneous demonstration, protest rally outside the jail at Tule Lake. Uh, And it was totally voluntary. We told everyone, you know, this is what we're doing. No one has to participate, but we just want to make a statement and send it out on social media. We're pleasantly surprised that like 80 to 85% of the people on the pilgrimage joined in the protest rally, including a lot of Nisei, people in the 80s and 90s, 
you know, raising their fists and saying, never again, stop repeating history. Children and families belong together. That kind of sparked a, a series uh, of similar protests at the rest of the pilgrimages happening that summer. Uh, Minidoka did a similar thing the week after. I think they did another one at Heart Mountain. Then it, they started happening in like J-towns, like in LA and San Francisco through the rest of 2018. So that kind of coalesced into the idea that we should be in touch. So we formed a loose network. And then in 2019, there was a pilgrimage a scouting party that went to Crystal City, Texas to scout out for the pilgrimage that happened later in the year. But they found out that the Dilly Family Detention Center was like 30 miles away from Crystal City, literally on the road to Crystal City. So they said, well, we we have to stop there. And, you know, they put out a call for people to, to fold sudo so they could hang them on the fence when they got to Dilly because they knew it was too far for, for the kids to hear us. But they figured if we hung these brightly colored things on the fence, they might be able to see it. And so they asked for 10,000 cranes to be sent to San Antonio to hang on the fence. And, you know, a, a lot of folks were looking at each other and saying, wow, that's a lot of cranes. Like, do you think we can really get that many? We ended up with over 25,000 cranes being sent in, folded from all over the place. Almost half of them got folded in Seattle. And then later in the summer of 2019, we heard that they were going to open a brand new child detention center, a, a concentration camp for kids at Fort Sill, Texas. And Fort Sill was an um, internment site for Issei men during World War II. It held 700 people there. And it also had a history of holding Native Americans like Geronimo, the famous Apache chief, was sent there and died there. <laughs> it's like they're recycling these you know, they used it to lock up Native Americans and they used it to lock up Japanese Americans. And now they're going to recycle it one more time to lock up undocumented children. We mobilized and protested at Fort Sill saying, you, you can't do this. Uh, we refuse to let this happen. And it got a lot of media play because the military police came out and said that you have to leave. You can't stand in front of the gates and make a political statement. And our Nisei elders, you know, the survivors said, we're not moving. You know, if you're going to arrest us, arrest us, but we're not moving. We're, we came here to make a statement. We're going to do that. And so the, the MP had to back off. That kind of sparked a lot of sympathy and related outrage in the local population because we had contacted folks that had heard of uh, in the area. So we connected with people in the Black Lives Matter movement. We connected with uh, American Indian Movement, AIM folks, United We Dream, a national organization that works with DACA students, Detention Watch Network. And two weeks later, they invited us back because they said, we, they're still thinking of doing it, so we need to do something bigger. So we had a march that had like 400, 500 people including all of those different groups. And that, that kind of multinational, multi-ethnic unity 
is something that we cherish and is something that's not happening often enough and hadn't happened really in Oklahoma. You know, these folks knew that other groups existed, but they had never really worked together on a, a thing. So, so we were happy to be able to provide that kind of uh, impetus to pull people together. So later uh, in August of 2019, we formally, we met and formally formed Sudu for Solidarity. Then we started planning um, a march on Washington that was planned for June of 2020. And we had a lot of plans, like we were going to have bus caravans going across the, the country to converge on DC. And then we we're going to have uh, 125,000 cranes to hang on the White House fence, you know, one for each person incarcerated in World War II, and have 100 Tyco players out there on, in front of the White House. But COVID happened, so that canceled. Speak a little bit to some of the workshops and so forth that are held online. As I understand, there's been ones for youth, there have been ones for uh, more recently, a Palestinian uh, study uh, workshop. Could you could you speak to some of this so that people understand kind of the breadth of what gets discussed in this group? Yeah, so Sudu for Solidarity um, is a network of Japanese-American, primarily social activists that gathered and coalesced around the issue of immigrant rights and uh, discrimination against migrants and the, in particular, the mass detention sites, the concentration camps that have been used to uh, punish and, uh, and then deport a lot of migrants coming across the border. Uh, and not just Mexicans and Central Americans, but um, a lot of folks from Southeast Asia and uh, Africa and the Caribbean, Haiti in particular. So, um, so that was the original impetus. I think uh, now we have formed four areas of work. The original one being the child and family detention campaign. And uh, we have a police prisons and detention campaign that kind of emerged out of uh, work with Black Lives Matter and looking at policing and uh, racism within that, particularly directed against uh, BIPOC communities, people of color uh, and other marginalized groups. And then we have the reparations campaign because we also are strong supporters of reparations for African-Americans coming out of the long, long history of slavery, and then Jim Crow. And then our fourth campaign is what we call our healing justice initiatives. That is, hmm, since the beginning, largely due to the leadership of Satsuki Ina, one of our founding members and uh, herself a survivor, she was born at Tule Lake concentration camp. She's a trained psychologist and has worked a lot with dealing with trauma, particularly intergenerational trauma and trauma among kids based on her own family history. 
her feeling and her teachings is that we all carry trauma and trauma passes through generations. So, you know, all of us, even if we weren't in a camp, but our parents, our grandparents were, uh, some of that trauma gets passed on as well. And uh, maybe even more so than the people who actually experience it, the people who came later and didn't physically experience it, but still carry some of that trauma, maybe unaware of it, finding a healing space and a healing way of doing things is really important because we go out and one of the things we weren't satisfied with, with a lot of what we call mainstream or, or I guess normal uh, protest rallies is people go out and it can be very intense emotionally, sometimes physically, especially during Black Lives Matter uprisings. There's a lot of passion, often a lot of anger or a lot of sorrow. Then it ends and everyone goes home and you're kind of like you leave with all these heightened emotions that what do you do with it? And Satsuki's feeling is that we need to, one is we need to incorporate some healing into any action that we do take. So Tsuda for Solidity is, is big on, on doing some kind of rituals or something participatory where people can take an action that is healing and not just, so we're not just raising our fist, which we do, and we're not just chanting, which we do, but we're also doing something. So whether it could be placing Tsuda on the fence outside the detention center, or ringing a bowl gong as we read names of people who have died in detention or are still in detention or on hunger strike or placing flowers uh, and commemorating all the children whose lives have been lost or ruined like we did at Greensboro. So we, we try to figure out some way to incorporate art and music and, and healing into our activities, but also uh, we want to do healing circles. So after we do one of these actions, we try to gather at least the, the organizers and, and the main uh, participants together into what we call healing circles. And it's just sort of a, a way of bringing people together so we can, and it's not debriefing. It's not like we're going over the action and, you know, what was what went well? What didn't go well? How many people did we have? Did the media show up? You know all those kinds of things, which we will do as well. But the healing circles is focused on what were you feeling during the action? How do you feel now? Um, and being able to just express yourself. So we we it, it's a directed listening really, where everyone is given a chance to say what is on their mind, what is in their heart, and everyone else is there to listen. We're not there to interrogate each other or argue, like, why well, I didn't feel that way, or, or you shouldn't feel that way. We, we don't want any of, of that. It's, it's non-judgmental. It's whatever you're feeling is what you're feeling. And we want you to be able to express that in a supportive uh, and listening, attentive, circle of even if we don't didn't know each other before we hope that we are all friends 
So we do that. We try to keep them small, like ideally eight to 10 people in a circle. We always have facilitators, people who've done it before, who have some experience in it, um, who can kind of direct it. We've done it for other organizations. And now we found that there's a lot of organizations that want to be trained how to do it for themselves. So like we've been working locally with La Resistencia, uh, the group that's trying to shut, been trying to shut down the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. A group uh, from Sudu just a few months ago went to Lahaina. So yeah, so that's our fourth campaign is the Healing Justice Initiative. There's this long history of anti-Asian sentiment on the West Coast, resulting ultimately in the Chinese Exclusion Act, the first immigration act that identified a specific nationality that could not be allowed into the country. Um, and they still needed the labor after they excluded the Chinese. So uh, Japanese were one of the groups that they started bringing in to replace the, the Chinese labor. So there was still that anti-Asian sentiment as Chinese and later Filipinos and and uh, even later Mexicans came in to fill particularly the uh, farm labor needs of the West Coast. And that resulted in things like uh, a, uh, alien land laws, which prohibited non-citizens from owning land. It was a way of getting around Instead of saying, well, Japanese can't own land, they said non-citizens because uh, by law, Japanese and other Asian immigrants could not naturalize, whereas European immigrants could naturalize. So they could become citizens, but Japanese, like my grandfather could, uh, when he came, they said, you can never become a citizen. So therefore you can never own land. Um, of course, people figure out how to work around these things. So uh, like my grandfather started buying land in the name of my uncle, who was probably like nine or 10 when he owned his first piece of property. Um, and then the, that was like probably the early 1910s, 1913, 14, I think is when a lot of the alien land laws got passed. 1924, they passed the Asian Exclusion Act where they had um, put uh, a quota on who, how many people can immigrate from each country. And for Japan, it was something like 100 people per year. So basically shutting off immigration. And then during the Depression, when there's economic problems, usually people look to find a scapegoat. And on the West Coast, it was largely Asians and Japanese in particular. So you get a lot of uh, signs out there like no Japs wanted here. And when the war broke out, you started seeing things like Jap hunting licenses being issued. And you know, all these racist caricatures being produced and, and definitely isolation and segregation happening. Even if it wasn't de jure by law, segregation was for blacks in the South in the Jim Crow period, it was unofficial and, and, and often heavily enforced. Japanese can't live in this part of town. Japanese should stay on that side of the railroad tracks. 
can work in these areas, but they can't work in these areas. I know my father was the first in his family to graduate from college, and he went to Stanford University, got a degree in economics. A lot of his classmates, the white ones, would go on to get like these junior exec positions in different corporations, but all he could get was a clerk position uh, in a for a tractor uh, company. Because And the reason he got that is because a lot of their uh, customers were Japanese farmers, and so they wanted someone who could relate to the Japanese farmers. After the war, it, it just seemed like he wouldn't be able to make a living uh, trying to make it in the white collar world. So he went back to farming after the war. As incarceration loomed closer, were there people that came to their side? Yeah, there were people who came, um, mainly individuals. There weren't very many organizations, uh, large corporations, um, or politicians who stood by the Japanese. So they're better known as the exceptions than as, you know, uh, one of many. But um, there's folks like Walt and Millie Woodward on Bainbridge Island. They ran the, the local newspaper there. Walt and Millie were young, a young couple who had bought the, the newspaper and they were just starting out. And they thought it was outrageous, that it was unconstitutional, and that it was a travesty of justice. And they wrote that in their their editorials. And they lost some business because they did. You know, some people canceled their subscriptions or pulled their advertisement, but they stuck by, by their guns on it. In my own family, uh, you know, a lot of Japanese farmers uh, all over the place, but in Watsonville, where I grew, grew up and my family was before the war, uh, a lot of the Japanese fa farmers lost their farms during the war because you know, they got taken away. There was no one to take care of the farm. There was no one to pay the taxes uh, or keep up the equipment. And so a lot of them just lost everything. My family did not because uh, uh, my grandfather, when he first came over, uh, one of his first jobs was planting apple trees uh, in apple, an apple orchard owned by an Italian immigrant named Tony Tomasello. And this was probably like in 1900, 1905, that, that era. Uh, so, you know, almost 40 years later, uh, Tony Tomasello, when they heard that the Japanese are being taken away, uh, contacted my grandfather and said, hey, you know, I know you guys got a farm. I'll take care of it for you if you want me to. And there were other people who said they would take care of people's farms, but then they didn't. And they either stole the farm, you know, worked it so that it would, you know, it would go delinquent and then on taxes, and then they would buy it, or they would just say they would do it. And then they just ignored it and, and let it go to, to pot. Tony Tomasello um, was a man of his word. And it always struck me because I'm pretty sure Tony did not speak a whole lot of English. He's an Italian immigrant. And I know my grandfather spoke very little English, and I know he didn't speak any Italian. So I'm kind of wondering how, how they were able to communicate. But, but uh, Tony kept the farm intact. And when the war ended, uh, the farm was there. 
we used to when i was little we used to drive around on sunday afternoons because we didn't have enough money to <laughs> to go to a movie or anything so we just take a drive around the countryside and that was kind of our family outing and every once in a while we we take this one road and and we pass by this big uh cold storage shed that said tomasello big letters on the side and my dad would always slow down and point to it and say Tony Tomasello is the reason we have our farm today. So in in your family's case, you were very fortunate to have uh, a family friend who came mm -hmm. and helped. Tell me about the Tsuru for Solidarity actions that speak to being the people that you might not have had uh, as as families that were going to be sent to incarceration. Yeah, so Center for Solidarity is doing a series of actions in Seattle this coming week around Day of Remembrance. So we're calling it Day of Remembrance Week of Action. So we're going to participate in three actions. Uh, first one will be on Friday the 16th, February 16th, where we're going to go to the federal building and hold a press conference and rally demanding the shutdown of the Northwest Detention Center um, and in trying to pressure the federal government, uh, ICE, Department of Homeland Security, and also our two state senators, Maria Cantwell and Patty Murray, to uh, work towards not just improving conditions at Northwest Detention Center, which it certainly needs, but shutting it down and, and ending detention as a first line of or first resort for dealing with um, migrants coming into the US. Our second action will be the community one, um, kind of a continuation of what we've been doing for the last four or five years, uh, at starting at the Puyallup Fairgrounds and holding a, and we call that remembrance and resistance. So uh, we started the Puyallup Fairgrounds, which was the temporary detention center during World War II. Uh, most of the people from Seattle and surrounding areas got locked up there before they were sent to the permanent camps in either Tule Lake or Minidoka, Idaho. Uh, and then from there, we move over to the Northwest Detention Center, and that's our resistance piece where there are still people being detained. The stories we hear coming out of those folks who were in Puyallup in 42 is that the sanitation was bad, the food was terrible, the medical uh, care was almost non-existent, and uh, people were locked up, they didn't have much to do. And so, we go over to the Northwest Detention Center and we talk with people who are held on the inside or have recently been released from inside. And they tell us that the food is bad, the sanitation is terrible, uh, medical care is you know, very difficult to get and they don't listen to you. And uh, families are being separated. You know, I haven't seen my kids in three or four months. Uh, Paul Tomito, <laughs> told us, you know, the names change, the faces change, but it's all the same old shit. We talk to Native Americans, like the Puyallup tribe of Indians, when they talk about the boarding schools that they got sent to, it's a lot of the same stuff. 
the conditions are very, very similar. And whether we're talking about, you know, early in the 1920s or in 1942 or 2024, conditions in the detention centers are, are the same. We feel that we need to raise a voice and, you know, if it wasn't right, it wasn't good for us, how can it be right or good for anybody else? And that's what we want to impress on people because because we want redress, a, a lot of people know about what we went through. Politicians uh, on both sides of the aisle tend to be very sympathetic to Japanese American experience during World War II and agree with us that it should never happen again. Yet they'll vote for continuing the detention centers for migrants and they won't act to change the conditions or provide more oversight or just seek a different way of of dealing with people. And it's really encouraging that for the Sunday program where we start at Puyallup and we fairgrounds and we go over to the Northwest Detention Center, it's a community coalition of Sudu for Solidarity, Seattle JACL, Puyallup Valley JACL, Densho, and the Minidoka Pilgrimage Planning Committee. So we're the five co-sponsors and we get also get support from folks like the Blaine United uh, Blaine Memorial United Methodist Church and uh, uh, Japanese Cultural and Community Center of Washington. Oh, and then the third thing we're doing for the week is on Tuesday the 20th, Tsuru is with La Resistencia going to do another press conference and uh, protest rally at the King County International Airport, the publicly owned airport that is used by ICE for deportation flights. Every Tuesday, they bring a plane up from Phoenix and load people on from the Northwest Detention Center, and then they fly them to El Paso, Texas, where they then either get deported across the border in El Paso, or they get put on another plane to be sent wherever the like Guatemala is is a common place, or Honduras, to be deported. We feel it's wrong for a public facility to be used for that purpose. We're going to uh, do a, a protest rally there. I'd like to give a shout out to La Resistencia, our partner in, um, that we've been working with since 2019. In, supporting people on the inside of the Northwest Detention Center and working on a variety of ways to try to shut it down. Because uh, they've been really, it's led by directly impacted people. So the leadership is all people who either um, themselves are at risk of deportation or have family members who have been deported They've been in contact and they stay in contact with people on the inside at Northwest Detention Center. And we do things to try to support them and understand what the conditions are and, and expose that, publicize that to the outside world. That was Stan Shikuma, co-chair of Tsuru for Solidarity's Children and Family Detention Campaign. I interviewed him earlier this week. I'm Yuko Kodama.
You're listening to The Grit on 91.3 KBCS Community Radio since 1973. Stan Shikuma introduced the organization La Resistencia as a partner in a series of actions to observe the Day of Remembrance. Next, Marumora Vialpando, founder of La Resistencia, spoke with me earlier this week about their partnership work with the Japanese-American community for the past five years. You know, it was very surprising to us that Japanese-Americans care about the issue of immigration detention and deportation. Um, we thought we knew about their struggle uh, during World War II. We really didn't understand a lot about it, except the little things that some of us got to learn in the school. It was such an experience being with a different community and a different culture that we're used to. Uh, because the majority of us are Latinx, you know, Latine, uh, Mexican, um, there are some other nationalities, but for sure we never encounter a Japanese being detained in the immigration detention center, uh, which I'm not saying they're not, but we have not encountered any so far. And so it was a very, very uh, uh, different, very different experience because most of the groups that have uh, reached out to us, um, it's been difficult to work with them. Um, especially with the white community, we we encounter so much so much you know privilege and white supremacy and um, there's a lot of activism and you know what they call tourist activism. They just come and drop and you know, they want to get experience and they move on to the next issue. Um, and so based on that, we are always very careful on how we uh, get approached and who do we invest our time with. Uh, we obviously want to work with everybody. We want to make sure that you know everybody's part of this movement. But what uh, we have to do at the same time is we have to really decide who do we work with. And in this case, it, the experience has been amazing because something that Suru has always said uh, publicly is they want to be the allies that they didn't have. And they're definitely that. They're definitely the allies now for us that we need and they didn't have back then. So just having that understanding of what they want to do for, for us that they didn't have in the past, that in itself um, shows a lot of commitment uh, to something that really wouldn't be their issue, right? But here they are, and they're here with us for the long haul. Tell me about what it's been like um, in terms of uh, working with this community and learning about uh, the experiences of Japanese Americans. What are some things that you've noticed or similarities or you know, things that kind of struck you? Well, I think that's something I heard a lot uh, from the Japanese American communities trying to support our, our movement in, in whatever shape or form necessary, is that something they struggle with is assimilation, right? They were forced to assimilate uh, to, to prove that they were not the enemy. And so I think that's something that, that we're facing nowadays is precisely um, this idea of I'm not the bad one, I'm not the criminal, uh, I'm not your enemy. And so this, this position of people being forced to not be who they are in order to not be the target of ICE, even within detention. We have seen a lot of people that uh, usually would not talk to us because they say, well, everything is okay. You know, the first couple of days or weeks when people are detained, they're like, no, no, everything is okay. Because they think if I don't complain, if I just let it go, I'm going to get released. And as time went by, they realized, oh, no, I'm not getting released things are really bad, um, and I comply, I assimilate it, and yet I'm still detained. And that's when finally it hits them. 
and they call us and they're like, no, things are not okay. So I think this assimilation, this force assimilation, right? This, this purpose uh, of you should not be who you are and you have to change in order for us to accept you is replicated in so many ways in the immigrant experience nowadays, even within detention. But at the end of the day, something has to give. And so what we've seen with Japanese Americans now, they saying, no, we, we refuse the moral minority uh, um, uh, stigma, right? The stereotype of it and the imposition of assimilation. Um, and this is how we're going to organize from now on. This is how we're going to respond. That's what we're looking at people in detention saying, this is not working out. I'm still detained. I need to do something. So I'm going to organize. So I can see those parallels from this history of this community reacting now and, and people in detention as well, uh, having to react at some point in order to get released. For the newcomers, it's like, oh, if I can just assimilate, if I can just play this game, but <laughs> it may be rigged. Totally rigged. Totally rigged. And, and yeah. I think that's, that's the point, right? I mean, I think what, what Sur is telling us, don't wait generations to react. And, 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 and you have to reject privilege because this privilege is fake. It doesn't really exist. You might be comfortable right now, but look what happened to us and how it's happening to other people. So we need to reject this, this false security, this false um, privilege that assimilation gives us, but it's not real. And in, in, in what we see is how it replicates in the detention that things are so bad that that assimilation ends up losing because, you know, people don't have beds or if they have beds that, you know, the mattresses are years, years old. Uh, people have uh, used uh, underwear. Somebody else wore it before them. I mean, things are so bad that, you know, you don't have to wait generations to react. Uh, but yet this false sense of, I'm going to be okay, they're going to release me. And at the end of the day, it's not because like, because it's like you said, it is rigged. Nobody really wins in detention. Nobody really wins on their immigration enforcement custody. There's such an image of the Japanese American or the Japanese in general across the world, right? Which is Japanese are perfect. Their society is perfect. Uh, we should all be like them. Look at them. They're wealthy. You know, they have everything. They don't have complaints. And that's the problem. Did you think there's no problems when there's no complaints? Um, but at the end of the day, you can see that people do resist. People do react. It's just that it might not be the same way that we tend to react as Latina or Latinx or the way we expect people in general to react and resist. So there are different ways to do so. There are different ways to support. But I think for every community, they should be... Uh, an unlearning of the oppression, unlearning of the assimilation. And for every every community looks different. Um, obviously for the Japanese American community here in the Seattle Tacoma area, it looks very different as well because there's so much wealth, right? Um, and, and most of the Japanese American community has some level of uh, economic privilege. Um, and so if they have that possibility at the moment to support that way, at least it shows that, yeah, something is wrong, I'm going to resist. I'm still not there yet. My community has not gone through the process that needs to go to undo and be and not be afraid anymore. Um, and again, for us, for the Latino community, we've been hit so hard for so many years. We had no choice. We had to be the ones on the streets. We had to be the ones 
shutting down the, the, the buses of deportation, you know, for our community, because we were being targeted so um, boldly, boldly by, by the, by immigration customs enforcement that it, it, it was up to us and we weren't, we would not be the only community being targeted by ICE, but we are the main community, right? Like we're being the, the piñata <laughs> of ICE. So yes, I think that it looks different for each of us. It depends also what's going on in your community and in every part of history. Um, but I think that that's what I've learned about the Japanese American community that we all think that they all just went along, you know, they got incarcerated, they just were quiet, they they got released and, you know, and now they're wealthy. No, it's not that simplistic. People did resist. People created ways to survive. And, and I think that's the beauty of this, that we should not expect everyone to be the same as us because then we're just doing the same say a thing of be assimilating us, you know, assimilate to the US and then assimilate to the movement that expects you to, to be certain way or react certain way or organize certain way. Another thing that came up in my conversation with Stan was the reference to that healing kind of work in tandem with resistance. Um, yeah, that's uh, healing was uh, uh, an amazing, amazing learning that we we just grasp immediately we we literally just took it and say we need it you know Suru's uh healing circles were totally different from what we have seen before in in this again very wealthy uh you know wide uh society in the seattle tacoma area and although we have our own healing uh practices from you know from mexico guatemala etc um we really didn't have the chance, not even the time to sit down and say, let's let's talk about healing, that we need healing. You know, we get calls every day from the detention center and the things we heard every every time. Um, I just, you know, part, part of our work is also to, when we heard about so much violence, sometimes uh, like February 1st, 2023, that they gas. ICE and Geogast, uh, an entire unit, we requested the videos. And finally, a year later, we got some. Uh, and we just got one that shows finally one, one just like two minutes of how they gas people. Those two minutes took me five hours. I couldn't watch them. I just watched the first third second and I stopped. And I told my team, when you, when you watch it, because we all have to watch it, please take time. And then after watching it, go out and walk. Um, and I thought to myself, we need to do a healing circle after we all watch it. Because the way Suru has introduced the, the healing circles to us, it has shown that we can use our own uh, ancestral practices to come together and as a community, heal those, those, those wounds that are right there in the surface of everyday work. And it's not uh, therapy, for sure it's not. That's not what we intend to do. And, and it's not, not a single organization's mission is to heal people. <laughs> that's, that's not what we're not supposed to do. It's impossible. Nobody can do it. You know, it's an individual process. And it's an individual responsibility. Yet, it is our responsibility as an organization that we're facing so much violence and brutality every single day, either to what happens to us or our loved ones or people in detention, that having this space that 
sort of build and they gave it to us and said, look, this is how we do it, but you do it whatever way you works for you. This works for us. Doesn't mean it's a cookie cutter and everybody can just grab it. Um, so we have grabbed it and we have played with it and we came up with our own. Um, and now in uh, in the Latine community, it's, it's, we are sharing our model and other people are sharing their models. And we say it has to be within the organizing work healing has to be a part of it all the time like when we say it has to be fun we all have to have you know time to dance and sing and, and eat and you know have have time together sometimes just just to be together we also need the time for healing and i think that we wouldn't have put so much effort until we actually saw Suru putting it in practice every time they had these very very intense actions uh, right after they had the healing circles and we say, yeah, we have to make time because we do evaluations where we do the briefs, but we don't do the healing. We need to make the space. And it, now it's a practice, a common practice of resistencia. And we push other groups to do so. And they're saying we are working on, on healing circles and it's because resistencia is telling everyone, you know, we all have to have healing and we have to make the time for it, even if we don't have it. Could you tell me how, how it works? Yeah, well... Basically, is everyone has a chance to speak, um, but w before uh, a person speak, they have to reflect on what they heard before, and they call it weaving, and I think that's amazing because it's not only about you talking about what you feel at the moment and your your reflection reflections of the action or of what just happened. It's also that you are really listening to the person that just spoke and you are grasping what you can from that conversation and making it into your own. Because a lot of the things that we hear from others had to do a lot with, with us, right? We were all in the same action. We're facing the same enemy. So obviously a lot of what you feel, I feel too. Um, so it's just to acknowledge people's uh, feelings, right? Like, you're sad I also feel sad but guess what I'm also angry right <laughs> and so there's that connection that these circles create that is not only okay everybody speaks go around and you know and just say how, how you're feeling and that's the end of it no it's it's really intentional to create a deeper connection amongst all, all of us it's especially when you've been hurt so much or you are witness of so much hurt and, and brutality that uh, connection of I feel what you're feeling I got the call and I understand I saw the video or I saw the family or I saw that person being beat up by ICE or Geo and I totally understand how you're feeling I think it makes a, a deeper connection for all of us and builds deeper trust because that's what the movement is about is trust we need to trust each other Yes, uh, I guess, you know, the, the specific intent is so intentional to create those connections of I listen to you. You're listening to me, but I'm listening to you as well. That's um, that's something that, uh, yes, uh, you, you don't usually see in others. And then you can model after that. You can expand that connection when you're putting together your circle. I mean, the idea of the circle is sadly you have limited time. <laughs> you know, it's not like you can go on an entire day. And it's not also useful, but it is helpful because once you do one circle and then you come back again, you have the hang of it and, and the, the, the rhythm becomes your own. 
because it really the circle is built on whoever is there right people people get to know each other and the next time we have a healing circle we don't have to have you know like the instructions of who's next people know how they already know how it works so the more you do it the better it gets to the point of how we share how we listen to each other there's an expectation already i'm gonna listen i want to share but i'm here to listen and so that's what I think it's it's so different because it builds on more than it's just not me. It's about everybody in the circle. How has uh, working with Tsuru healing or not been affecting the people inside uh, the detention center and the work that is is getting done? Well, people in detention get very surprised every time we say, you know, Japanese Americans are putting together an action and there's like 400 of them outside the detention center. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> Japanese Americans, 400 of them? Why? Um, and so they, you know, every time we, we mention Suru, people say, please tell them we're thankful. Uh, you know, they didn't have to spend their time here. They're, they could be doing other things and they don't know us and they really don't have a, a reason to be here, but thank you. And I was like, no, they do have a reason. They're fighting for injustices. We all should be doing something, no matter what, no matter the nationality. We all we are all responsible for the detention center being open here. Everybody needs to do something. And Suru is the example of the best ally that we have. So Suru set a standard, a very high standard for organizations that approach us, but also even for people in detention, because now they're expecting Suru <laughs> to show up. Right. And so we're saying now we're going here. Now that we're going there, uh, Suri is coming or Suri is out there with us. And um, a lot of there's new people coming in and out of the detention center. So we have to introduce Suri every time. But once we do for some time, we don't have to repeat who they are, you know, because then people get to know them. Um, and, and Stan, Stan really, he's one of the, the like the main uh, volunteers of, of Resistencia and People see him everywhere with us. And and at the beginning, people would wonder, like some families would be like, who's he? <laughs> and why is he here? And and nowadays, nobody, nobody questions, you know, Stan. It's like people actually expect Stan to show up there with us. Uh, Stan from Suru. So uh, yeah, he's just now, it's just normal for, for, for people to see Stan and think, Resistencia, Suru, Suru Resistencia, well, it doesn't matter. He's here and he's ready to, to fight alongside us and people trust him and people trust Suru as they trust Resistencia. This detention center, this detention center has used over 20 times uh, chemicals, uh, you know, gas chemicals against people in detention. This detention center is the one that uses solitary confinement the longest in the entire country. This detention center is the one that has the lowest bond rate in the country, 3%. Only 3% of people applying for bond will get a bond to be released. Whereas another detention center in um, Florida has almost, almost 50%. So if you're detained in Tacoma, you only have 3% chance of getting a bond. While if you were in Florida, you have 50% chance of getting released with bond. We know that the contract that GEO has with ICE here um, has a minimum guarantee of 1100 something beds. That means that if they get, uh, you know, 800 people right now detained, ICE, meaning you and I, our taxes are paying for 1100 beds. 
So for, for ICE, it's more convenient to fill as many beds as possible so they're not paying for empty beds. Um, what also means is that people staying the longest there, uh, GEO makes more money because this is one of the most expensive detention centers. ICE always use NWDC as their flagship. You know, they always talk about, oh, it's, it's very clean. Oh, you know, we have a dentist chair. Always the first thing, thing they will brag about is their dentist chair that nobody really cares. Um, and so they they really are spending a lot of money. I mean, your money, my money, your listeners' um, money is being spent on keeping this place open. Um, Geo is spending the money that we're giving them in lawsuits and paying lawyers. They're not spending it on the food they're supposed to 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 provide to people that in the in detention. They're not giving new uniforms. I mean, if you watch the movies and you know about a person going into prison and they get a uniform, you all assume it's new, right? And in the movie, they don't say, "Oh my God, it's all dirty and already worn by somebody else." Well, that's the case in the detention center. When you get to the detention center, the first thing you get is a, a, a uniform worn by somebody else, underwear worn by somebody else. And you can tell because this spot is, is, is dirty. I mean, um, shoes, they're already worn by somebody else. The, the soles are so wasted that you can sleep easily. So people walk carefully not to sleep. So they don't want to spend absolutely any money on people in detention, nor on the detention conditions. They rather spend it in lawsuits. We're making sure other people, other people file lawsuits against them, and they rather just spend millions of dollars in, in these lawyers and in these frivolous lawsuits also against, you know, City of Tacoma or, or Washington State or whatever, than actually uh, providing the minimum, minimum basic conditions that people assume exist, but they don't in, in the detention center. Those basic human conditions don't exist. In the case of detention, what is it that they have done? Immigration detention is civil. It's the civil system. It's not the criminal system. Uh, so it means you committed an administrative fault. That's it. So being in the country with no papers is not a crime. It's just an administrative fault. Uh, that's why we say nobody should be detained because for an administrative fault, you should not be in detention. You can be fighting deportation proceeding at home. Uh, so what we have in the detention center is really everybody and anybody. Uh, people that cross the border and turn themselves in and are requesting asylum are getting detained. People that cross the border and didn't get a chance to request asylum, they get detained. Uh, people that were, you know, driving and the police stopped them in, you know maybe in like idaho and they had a uh, maybe a traffic violation they could be sent to immigration customs enforcement um custody uh people that you know did a crime and committed a crime and did 30 year sentence and they finished the sentence they're sent to the detention center as well there's no real reason to detain people when you're facing the civil system because one thing is that you have uh, committed a crime or you're being accused of a crime and you're supposed to have the right to, to fight, right? And prove your innocence. Um, and if you finish your sentence, you're supposed to not be trial again, right? That's double jeopardy. Well, for the immigration system, it doesn't matter. 
you all are guilty just because we want you to, to be detained because we need to fill these beds is to fulfill economic and political commitments, not because there's any safety issue on this side. The only th truth is if people committed a crime, that's what we have the criminal system for. And if you did your time, you should be done with it. You know, how many uh, immigrants we know that you know, had DUIs like Justin Bieber. I've never seen him getting deported to Canada. But then you have a, a you know a poor immigrant, black immigrant that had a DUI, and that's enough for them to try to deport him back to Haiti. And so it's a racialized system. It's a system to control our black and brown poor immigrant communities. It has nothing to do with what people did or did not. And that's why we say all detentions and all deportations need to end because these are targeted to poor people. We don't have, you know, wealthy immigrants in the detention center. They would never put a foot in there. But it's a racialized system because there's there's very clear attack on black and brown uh, immigrants. Is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, we have not seen any, any response from our congressional delegation whatsoever, nothing. Senator Murray, Senator Cowell have been extremely quiet. Uh, Suru, as a matter of fact, has reached out to Senator Murray. We have not heard anything. Derek Kilmer, the representative that, that since 2023, he, in his district is now the detention center um, and he's not running for office. I think he really doesn't care about his legacy because he's not moving a finger in regards to the detention center. So all of them are very quiet. You know, there's it's it's incredible that you represent such a quote-unquote progressive state. You care so much about families and children. You care so much about immigrants. You care so much about poor people. And yet, yet you feel like you can ignore what's going on in the detention center. Every person in the congressional delegation are responsible for this detention center still being open here. They have a responsibility, more than anyone, more than the state, more than the city, more than the county. And they have done something. Syria Tacoma has changed completely from supporting the, the creation and building of the detention center in 2000 to 2020, passing an, a, a resolution saying people should be released because of COVID. You know, the state that just looked away every time they could, they passed already three, three laws, state laws that we, we push for. They passed them saying, yes, you know, something needs to be done in regards to the detention center because it's a private detention center. And we have jurisdiction over, over a, a business in, in, in our state. So if we have moved the city of Tacoma, if we have moved the state legislature, how come the congressional delegation where this is a federal contract, we're talking about a federal agency, ICE, they don't want to move a finger. It's a shame. It's a shame. And we're going to be there on Friday to make sure that they know what we think of them. No one has said anything. Absolutely nothing. You know, they can introduce, introduce bills. That's great. Where do these bills go? Nowhere, nowhere. There are things that can be done right now. Absolutely, there are things that they can do, like the budget. Don't give more money to ICE. Fight to end this contract. Make sure that the, the, the state has the right to go in. Fight along the state to impose, uh, to make sure that our law HB 1470 is um, applicable because we've been trying to get inspections unannounced uh, by Department of Health and Labor and Industry, NGOs refusing completely. That's what the congressional delegation should be working on at the same time that they're working on unannounced 
inspections by the, by the Office of the Inspector General and ending the contract altogether. That's what they would, they could be working on. They, the, the congressional delegation should be pressuring Biden to meet his promise of ending private detention, as he said, you know, so many years ago, and he's doing the opposite. That's what the congressional should, delegation should be doing, not being quiet. That was Maru Mora Vialpando, founder of La Resistencia. The actions by La Resistencia and Suru for Solidarity are calling for a full and complete shutdown of Northwest Detention Center. Their actions tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. at the Federal Building, this weekend in Puyallup and Tacoma, and next Tuesday will be posted at the KBCS blog, kbcs.fm. Thanks for listening to The Grit this morning on 91.3 KBCS. I'm your host, Yuko Kodama.